Well, hello, Class Unity Transmissions listeners. Welcome to our second ever episode of the Class Unity Transmissions podcast. Uh, we are joined today by our guest, George Hoare. But before I get to George, let me just introduce my comrades here. Uh, to my left, uh, although not necessarily politically, is Stephanie Krongos from Washington, D.C. Yeah, hello. I'm Steph uh, K. from D.C. I've been a member of Class Unity since October 2020. No, sorry, uh, June 2020. Yeah, <laughs> how time flies. Um, and uh, I was on the Central Committee for a uh, for two stints and uh, still a member of the membership committee. To my right, definitely politically, is David Feldman joining us from the West Coast. Yeah, so um, I'm based in uh, Santa Barbara in California, um, and I have been a rank and file member of Class Unity for uh, a year and a half, I think, something like that. Um, I joined maybe a couple months after the start of the pandemic. Um, I'm also a subscriber to uh, BungaCast now on the $5 tier. So, um, yeah, I've been listening to the show for, for a couple of years now. I really enjoy it. And I was, I actually didn't, I hadn't read the book until a couple of weeks ago when we decided to do this. But um, I'm really glad that I got a chance to go through it. And last but not least, George. Uh, yeah, great, great to be uh, to be with you guys. So, yeah, I'm, I'm George Hall, one of the uh co-hosts of BungaCast and one of the co-authors of uh, the end of the end of history politics in the 21st century which is available again all good and bad bookshops um online and some some places presumably in, in person as well maybe we'll just start with uh, the question of what your podcast is actually called these days because i think it changes names from time to time yeah we've, we've gone through a, a rebranding um because people kept on asking us what does the name of the podcast actually mean and it was just getting too embarrassing to have to talk about Hegel and and Berlusconi and the dialectical unity of those things so I am reliably informed uh, that it's BungaCast on all good social on all good on all social media uh, channels so yeah um, yeah even the bad ones and we all know which ones we're talking about um so yeah we've 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 kind of gone like facebook they dropped the the so so it was just facebook not the facebook and we've dropped the uh the alphabet bong <laughs> so it's just bunga cast now it's cl cleaner george the way we had planned to do our session today um we 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 were each sort of tasked an area of the book to think about and and come up with a question uh, about. So um, we're going to go through this in a kind of an order here. And uh, our first question today is going to come from Stephanie. Yep. Uh, so, uh, George, in the book, you discuss Fukuyama's concept of the end of history and how many intellectuals misread it as a triumphalist celebration of American victory during the Cold War. Um, the better argument you claim is that Fukuyama was talking about the birth of a new era of liberal freedom. Can you elaborate a bit on politics of the end of history? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, the <clears throat> the, the the title of the book is a you know is a riff on on Fukuyama's famous article and then later book, uh, the end of history. Um, and the, I think the the basic idea um, that he has or that he he puts his finger on. The fact that 1989, the you know the collapse of the Soviet Union, the, the quote unquote victory of um, of America in the, the Cold War, this is could be understood as basically the victory of one sort of form of society over another. But instead, he's kind of a bit he's a bit downbeat about it. He's a bit sort of depressed about it because it's instead of this sort of sense of like. You know, we we beat the Ruskies. You know, look at it. We were def kind of definitively crowned as the best, you know, society ever in history. Instead, it was like the um, the Soviet Union collapsed under the weight of its own contradictions. It was a, you know, an, a, a Soviet defeat rather than an American victory in that sense, you might say. So, yeah, I guess what we thought Fukuyama gets right is that this the sorts of the sort of politics that directly follows then the the fall of the berlin wall that you know this this kind of basically the politics of the 90s and and noughties is one that's defined 
by the end of a conflict between substantially different visions of the world. So you get this, we call it post-politics um, in the book. And, you know, it depends on the age of the the, the listeners but or, and the readers of the book, but certainly the three of us uh, in, on the podcast, we all grew up in this in this period, you know, grew up in the, in the 90s and noughties. And, you know, def- a kind of defining example of this, you know, what is the politics at the end of history would be new labor, the third way. This idea that you can sort of, if you're clever enough and if you have enough experts and focus groups and quangos, you can get a- away from the conflict of social interest structuring politics and, st- and instead have consensus, instead, instead have technical expertise, giving you the best solutions to social problems. And it's basically management. And that's, you know... That's not very inspiring, potentially. Um, maybe it is for for Blairites, but you know, possibly not for us who who did the podcast. So you end up with this, you know, to bring all this together, this sort of situation where you know politics is quite um, any ideas of, of conflict are, are pretty much evacuated from it, and instead you have um, people running focus groups in 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 ties, telling you what the the best solution that can't really be objected to because it's the best. It's not in these people's interests or those people's interests. What the best solutions to social problems are. Thank you. Thank you, George. Um, I'm going to jump in with a question now, if I if I may. Uh, and George, I, I, you know, it's it's the it's the gorilla in the room. I'm afraid it's uh, it it overshadows everything now. Uh, I think we're into our fifth day of the war in Ukraine. Uh, I'm sure this is the kind of a question that every author of a topical book hates uh, that deals with macro theory because, you know, the book comes out and then immediately events have moved on. Um, I just wondered, you know, given, given what you've said about Fukuyama's thesis, given what you've said about your own orientation towards uh, his arguments, uh Broadly speaking, do you think the this war marks, or could it mark, uh, the return of politics? I just want to, you know, maybe offer as a provocation here. You know, if we if we look online, I think the dominant media response seems to very much orbit around uh, simplistic caricatures of Russian motivations that that you know focus specifically on on the personality of Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, as a, as a ruthless dictator. Um, but equally, in, in the background of a lot of the media coverage here, you, you are seeing quotes emerge from, from people like former U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, Jack Matlock, who says that people have been warning uh, NATO not to expand into Ukraine for, for over a decade now. I think this is con- potentially connected with the, the the arguments over the end of history because the West has been so typically used to getting its own way in this unipolar world order, in this post-political moment. Uh, I'm just wondering in terms of your book, to what extent is the Ukraine invasion here uh, kind of a reality check for the neoliberal technocracy that has so heavily uh, caricatured or characterized the, um, the the end of history moment? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a, a good and very valid question. And, you know, you have a theory and then, and then you know, reality um, kind of uh, is, is then comes against the theory and you see, you see how the theory does. I guess the, you know, but this, this is also worth saying that like we, you know, so we wrote the book and, and it was almost ready to be published. And then, you know, we had the, the COVID outbreak. Um, and so, yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's, deliberately quite a provocative and and kind of like high level thesis that we're that we're advancing and just in terms of like to try and answer the question more directly like in the book we 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 definitely say 2016 is a key date 2016 is a key dividing line because you have this period of of basically as i said it starts in 1989 um, and it runs to 2016 because that's when the in our argument at least the essentially the belated um, political consequences of the 2008 global financial crisis are felt, and particularly the events of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. So, like, there is a question as to, you know, is is this the correct dividing line? And I think I would, you know, I would stick by it and, and defend it because the the way we 
the way we advance the thesis is is the end of the end of history. So it's a double negative, i.e., there's like there's the previous consensus was was basically broken by by Brexit and and Trump. And you know, I'm saying this from a from a British perspective. So I'm, I'm you know, if you will indulge me to talk about uh, Brexit a little bit, that's that would be uh, very nice. Um, but yeah, the question then is like is this the correct dividing line? Like, can you have a dividing line of in 2008 in economics, 2016 in in domestic politics, and then 2022 in international relations? Um, but I think my, yeah, I think, because I think we should talk about it at least a little bit, my explanation of how the, uh, of like, what is the way to understand, you know, the this, this Russia-Ukraine situation um, is essentially that it is a product of the contradictions of the end of history period. And by this, I mean that you have, and this is essentially the same model that the um, that informs how European elites interact with the EU, which is that you have an attempt to escape national sovereignty <clears throat> and basically to internationalize a national political conflict. So it's not really a, a hot take as such, but in in Ukraine, this would be my my argument. Neither side was really able to represent. The nation as a whole there was a you know an east-west split within the country and so both sides to a greater or lesser extent looked to external um sources to help resolve this conflict or to help i guess evade the, the some of the challenges and, and contradictions of of kind of political accountability at home so this is essentially what the eu does <clears throat> so there's definitely a, a kind of a pattern here where you have domestic political, uh, domestic kind of national and democratic political struggles of various different sorts across the European continent, for example, and then these external constraints or external supports uh, kind of coming in to try and provide various sorts of solutions to these. So, I mean, I guess that would be my kind of roundabout way of saying that the, you know, the origins of, you know, what's happening in Ukraine are not a million miles away from some of the the same sorts of challenges or same sorts of, um, I guess, positions that European countries are in with relation to the EU, because it's this attempt to take national, like national problems, and provide in, in and have international uh, institutions which are supposedly <laughs> making these problems better, but in fact are making them much worse. Yeah, that's that's very uh, provocative. Thank you. Um, uh, I think I think maybe we'll 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 park the war. Maybe we can come back to it again later in the recording. But um, I know David has a question. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I I did want to bring us back a little bit to uh, the book itself, which, um, as I understand, was very much written as a way to sort of synthesize uh, a lot of the concepts and ideas that you all talk about on the podcast. Um, formerly known as Alpha Bunga Bunga, now officially known as Bunga Cast. So I just really wanted to ask if you could talk to us a bit about, um, about Bunga Cast. Uh, who are you? How did you all meet? And in terms of, uh, the book and the podcast more generally, would you say that you have a political project that you're trying to advance? Um, and if so, could you tell us a bit more about what that political project is? Yeah. So, um, in terms of the three of us, we met in like, I was actually trying to remember this. So it was like maybe like 2008, 2007 or six. So I met Alex and Phil, the other two hosts of the podcast, independently of each other. And then they met independently of me. So we all, you know, moving in the same sorts of circles. But like we're friends before doing the podcast, which I think is useful, has got us through some uh, some disagreements, certainly. And in terms of a political project, I think it is, we don't all agree, but I think that is useful. We probably agree on enough to have a productive conversation, but I think if we were to have a line um, as a group, I don't think it maybe would be so interesting. Instead, there are certainly uh, things which <clears throat> it's often a two versus one sort of um, sort of discussion. And instead, we we kind of want to advance an intellectual project more. We have this reading club that we we sort of set out all of the readings for 2022 at the beginning of the year. Um, and there's things like Schmidt, Agamben, Foucault we're doing. Then so a couple of readings on like the politics of fear 
contemporary ideology and then looking at kind of neo-feudalism. So we, you know, there is obviously a political leaning or intent to these to these readings, but it's not, you know, we're not associated with any um, political parties. We don't have any institutional backing. It's just, you know, just our listeners. Yeah, you don't listeners. have any political party yet, George. Um, no, I mean, this is, you know, maybe I'm being, uh, showing a lack of ambition and um, we could, we could, uh, follow in the footsteps of our our evil patron saint Silvio Berlusconi and look to become more directly involved in politics, but um, that's not the the primary goal. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I mean, the the book was just an attempt to synthesize some of these discussions that we'd had, and I think it's worth saying that we have tried to become a bit more serious, um, mainly driven by listeners and guests, kind of like forcing us to to be like very good discussions forcing us to actually you know do our homework think things through kind of respond to things in as serious as possible a way because you know i think it's there aren't there isn't a, a mainstream kind of media outlet that i can that i can think of that really gives a serious you know approach from the sort of perspective that we're interested in so you kind of got to I guess, take it upon yourself to do it to a greater or lesser extent, or at least try to do that. And that's, I guess, how the podcast has been evolving in the past couple of years. Yeah. And just as a quick follow-up um, to that, uh, my understanding is that you're sort of starting to um, actively try to bring out more people who are engaged within political projects. Um, and it seems like that's going to be a bit more perhaps of where the podcast is going in the future or can you just like talk briefly about how how that came about yeah so i mean this was actually an idea that we that we had back in i don't know if you remember this this period of of time back in like february 2020 i remember going to a um an actual like physical location with a lot of other people and talking about you know what would happen after <laughs> brexit in british politics and what should we do about it and thinking there's so many interesting people here you know these are the sorts of people we should talk about or talk with on the podcast and see you know not just in the british context but more widely how are people responding basically on the one hand to the to the defeat the failure of left populism but to a whole range of other things as well because there's clearly a lot of i think it follows on from our thesis like 2016 people were to a greater or lesser extent repoliticized um these kind of fixed and boring certainties of the end of history kind of went out the window people want to want to do things they're not all in the you know the older kind of models or like constraints of of you know communist parties of the past so what is it that pe that appeals to people mobilizes them gets them interested so yeah we're, we're hopefully going to be speaking to a few a few people who are actually not just uh not that there's anything wrong with podcasting but they're not just podcasting they're actually like organizing um, and not all from a kind of straightforwardly like post bernie post corbyn perspective but much more widely than that hopefully um so george in in the book you talk about the anti-political churn and how it marks the the return of dissensus can you talk a bit about anti-politics for our listeners and i guess define them yeah so i mean i'm personally quite a, a fan of, of a table in uh, in a book and if you know if it had been left to me in my own devices the book would have just been a series of tables probably but i think in this instance a table is useful and a good illustration because our understanding at least of of anti-politics is that like <clears throat> it's the the politics that corresponds to the period after the end of history so the end of his and listeners can't see me gesticulating as if as if there were actually a, a, a table listeners here. i can i can give some testimony to the fact that he is gesticulating and does it you it's know very, it's very rude <laughs> as it, it's very rude as in, it's quite disturbing yeah. david's upset as an English person, this is this is this is quite unusual. I'm not a I'm not a Southern European who will gesticulate um, at, at any opportunity. It takes quite a lot to get to get my hands going when I'm talking um, as a as a Brit. But yeah, I'm so yeah. So anti <laughs> this means he's having a good time listening. Yeah, exactly. Well, I finished I finished my my can of uh, I won't say what what cola it is, but uh, a well known one. So I've I've got the got the sugar uh, as well and as the a good caffeine. conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so like but anti-politics what what is this the i think that the idea is that the you know it's the sort of politics that basically corresponds to that post 2016 period so 
some people talk about <clears throat> populism um and it's obviously closely related but what we wanted to put our finger on or try to identify was that during the end of history you had post-politics you had let's say an elite moral panic about apathy so i don't i don't know if you'll sort of remember but there was a lot of worry about how do we get people voting how do we get people interested in politics well the reason people aren't interested in quote-unquote formal politics is because you know politicians are all the same and there's very little ideological distance between parties at least in in western europe for example <clears throat> but yeah so anti-politics the, the basic i guess idea is that people instead of being apathetic are angry there's uh, this kind of process of repoliticization or this um yeah return of dissensus if you want to kind of use some some five dollar words um or at least one there it's like the idea would be that you have and then in the moral panic that the elites try to propagate maybe is instead of like worrying that people are apathetic and not involved it's that they're ignorant it's that they're like they can't understand what's going on <clears throat> so the way you try and sort of manage this this period if you're a um if you're a kind of a member of an establishment party for example is by saying that you're uh, fellow citizens are a basket of deplorables or in the British context are racist, xenophobic, stupid, low information voters, I think is another phrase. The idea is that you you see in general um, a mobilization of, of or a return of people into politics to a greater or lesser extent. And the characteristic forms that these take are against the unrepresentative at that point existing um, political structures. So I think it's it's kind of our way to to try and look at what you know the populist moment because I, I don't i don't think the term populism is always that useful it's often you know it means different things in different contexts and it's often a way to sort of dismiss the, the people who are interested in populist projects because you know they're they're sort of gullible or or whatever yeah i, I think that, that 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 tracks for me um Regarding, uh, you, you do have a quote in here about, um, let's see, where is it? Well, I'll paraphrase. <laughs> you talk about um, majoritarian, majoritarian um, politics as being both terrifying for both the right and, and the left. And do you have, I, I definitely, um, I, I think that, that that speaks to your your earlier, like your description of anti-politics, but do you have anything else to say about that? Like with, with regards to the, the left and our, our movements on the left. So in if you're talking about majoritarianism, I think, which is something which I wholeheartedly support, the classic example or the kind of defining, the litmus test, if you will, was, was the Brexit referendum in June, 2016. Here you had a you know a massive democratic uh, expression of of um, <clears throat> popular will, um, but it was a democratic moment without a democratic movement. And this you know to link this back to this idea about anti politics, you know the existing political structures in in Britain there was no there was no real representation uh, in the cultural establishment, even in the political establishment of the 52% of people who turned out in, in June um, to vote to leave the EU. So what was the left's role in this? Well, I can attest uh, that the most vociferous and uh, vicious um, attack, uh, attacks on the democratic vote came from those who would identify themselves as left-wing. Um, I, you know, getting called a, a fascist or a racist was not something that I was expecting to happen, but it it did. Um, and I think this was because, <clears throat> well, there's a whole range of explanations, but I think the, probably the crudest one, um, but one that is correct, um, I would say, is the class basis of the left at that point. It was essentially what's now uh, known as the PMC. Um, but at that point, you know, or in the British context, you would probably say middle class. Um, but yeah, those were the people who made up the left and the um, the uh, momentum and, you know, various parts of, of Labour Party, which were very keen to have a, a second referendum. So that was, you know, that was the context. And I think that's kind of surprisingly like deepened 
Um, so that now, <clears throat> even more so, you would say that the left and the working class are, are kind of not on the same side. Yeah, um, sounds <laughs> sounds right to me. I definitely remember that that time period and just the explanations from people who are self-described leftists who were like, yeah, it's just because everyone's really racist over there. It was a huge shock and they're all really racist. Um, so... Yeah, that's definitely. Yeah, and, and, I, and we're not we're not racist um, over here in this. Uh, I was going to say this this glorious aisle, but it's actually really it's really rainy and grey here <laughs> in London today. Um, but other than talking about the weather, obviously, you know. But I mean, like, yeah, I mean, all the evidence really strongly suggests that you know British uh, attitudes towards immigration are very liberal um, in any you know with any comparator. Um, and that they, you know, impro improved, have improved since the um, since the referendum. So uh, improved in the sense of be being more liberal. Not sorry, not to put a value judgment on it. So I think, yeah, it it just shows more about the people making those um, accusations than the the people who the accusations are made about. Yeah. Um, one more thing. I'm sorry, guys. I, I don't want to keep going on, but I, I think this has to be addressed. Um, you do talk about anti-politics potentially being depoliticizing, especially um, like either leading back to like uh, technocratic solutions um, or even paving the way for like uh, like somebody like Trump or Bolsonaro, like <laughs> coming from above or coming from this um, anti-corruption politics place of politics um can you say a little more ab about that yeah so i mean I, I won't talk too much about bolsonaro because one of the other hosts is is uh, is brazilian and if i make any mistakes in analysis or pronunciation um i will be attacked for them uh, rightly so but the i guess the basic idea is that anti-corruption politics which is a form of anti-politics um you know it, it it targets the often you know accurately described as corrupt um political elites but what it ends up doing is not not uh, suggesting any alternative representative mechanism so instead of saying here is a vehicle through which class interests can be catalyzed can be represented it's instead basically like let's just um destroy the political class which, you know, maybe it does need doing. But in the context, in the Brazilian context, it was really clear what was happening was that one part of the corrupt political elite was successfully using um, ju juridical means to get rid of um, a democratically elected, also corrupt, other part of um, the political elite. So I think that's the sense that we meant, uh, in which we meant anti-politics can be depoliticizing because it doesn't make us kind of um a distinction between the the current represent political representatives that we have and alternative ones that we we could have um through through different means instead it's a kind of a, a blanket dismissal of the value of politics for changing people's lives and for being a, a kind of a, a valid um activity to participate in um so that anger just gets turned against the whole group, many of whom do indeed deserve it though. Yeah, and so um, if I can jump in here, I actually had a question that um, I guess picks up kind of like uh, piggybacks on a lot of the themes that we've you've just been discussing now with like the reaction to Trump, I mean, to, sorry, to Brexit. And, and and Trump and also um, corruption and anti politics. So, because uh, you argue that the reaction to Brexit and also to the election of Trump in 2016 was really um, led to a case of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome, what you call knobs, um, and particularly with like the liberal media in in, in the U.S. And you also argue, however, and I find this um, a really interesting comparison, is that the election and the rise of Donald Trump as a political figure also bears striking similarities to Silvio Berlusconi's rise to power um, in Italy in the 1990s. And Berlusconi, I think, as you mentioned earlier, is like the patron saint of the podcast. So I was just wondering if you could explain uh, first what knobs is 
and why it is that you make the connection between Trump and Berlusconi. And then I guess related to the second question, why do you view Italy as the perennial country of the future? Yeah, I'll try and, I'll try and take those in, in, in that order. I think the, the so what is NOBS, Neoliberal Order Breakdown Syndrome? I think we, we just wanted to um give a kind give a name to what we saw as the like basically the complete meltdown of the commentary app which was actually very good to see um in response to trump and brexit like and i I don't know if any if listeners have their favorite examples or if they know anybody who who suffered from this but you know casting casting your mind back to this point in time it was it was quite extraordinary (laughs) how and the entire liberal cultural political media establishment wasn't like we're obviously very angry that their you know the the conditions of their of their authority over the rest of society like in the case of brexit like the the entire cultural establishment said remain the entire cultural establishment said trump is a you have to be basically pretty fucking thick to vote for trump um like but all these things were ignored and you you had these votes being returned, but they couldn't understand. I mean, this was one thing that we t- talked about a lot in the podcast that there was only two outcomes from the 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 Clinton versus Trump vote. There was only two outcomes from you know of the Brexit referendum, and they just didn't see it coming at all. And they couldn't understand. They couldn't explain it. There was a real absence of of an attempt to really engage with the facts. Instead, it was easier and seemingly more satisfying for the uh, for cultural elites to just dismiss a majority like a majority of their fellow citizens so we wanted to kind of try and explain why this would be the case and i think it's you know the the argument that we that we gave was essentially contextual that and this is to be very crude nothing had happened politically between 1989 and 2016 something did happen and the kind of cultural explanations that had been given in the intervening period about why certain things were happening just simply didn't work because they weren't they weren't actually explanations they were just rationalizations or glosses there was no political or class analysis <clears throat> so that's my kind of sorry quite long-winded um way to to explain that but yeah neoliberal order breakdown syndrome or knobs was the ability the inability of the cultural political establishment to explain understand or respond to these twin traumas in 2016 but in terms of like in terms of Berlusconi um the way the reason why we thought that he was so important um was because he was you know this media figure um you know turned politician he was a fusion of the the kind of of entertainment and politics you know Trump obviously um was was this as well but Berlusconi sort of did it did it first and I'm not I don't want to say did it better because Trump was obviously successful in his in his own way um can't take that away from him he's a you know he's a winner um but Berlusconi is still going like there's still a possibility and obviously we're crossing our our fingers and toes that he will make a, a glorious return to Italian politics um and the reason why we think Italy's the perennial country of the future is not because not just because Berlusconi the TV um uh guy turned politician was you know prefigured trump in a very different way to reagan who obviously had some of that synthesis already um but that he that you know italy is a country of the future presents this kind of is it part of the core or the periphery of europe is it one foot in one foot out it's also in the uh, eurozone but this doesn't work well for for the country as a whole um, and certainly not for the you know the south of the country. Bergamo was the site of early kind of COVID uh, problems. It it seems always to give a um, uh, to to demonstrate clearly what some of the tensions and some of the things which are eventually going to erode and going to cause political problems um, are. I think the just a final point on Berlusconi, which I think is worth worth saying, um, is that he's I think. Not misunderstood, but in, in the Italian context, it becomes really clear how his like his particular brand of politics has become. He was the first, maybe the first person to do this, and it has now spread, you know, throughout the whole world. And this is the way in which he kind of synthesizes 
or makes the, the personal political, but in a, in a very different way to, what's, to how that's normally understood. So he had these bunga bunga parties, which were, you know, um, not what we do on, on our podcast, but um, that's, you know, that's not what I've of, heard, George. That's well, there, uh, are, there are rumors. Online. Yeah. I mean, it, it's up to listeners which sort of bunga bunga party they would prefer to attend Berlusconi's or, or ours. Um, but yeah, I don't know if he, I don't know if he does them, them virtually nowadays. Anyhow, the, <laughs> these kind of, you know, ex- extremely um, uh, kind of famous parties, um, but he basically, sh- or the, the argument we would make is that he showed that you don't have to follow quote unquote their rules. Like nudge, you can kind of, if instead of being a, a, a deal maker, you can be a, a, a rule bender. And this, this kind of special license that he showed in his personal life, he also showed in his political life. Like you, you don't like, you can get by, by just bending the rules in your favor. And if you live in a, in a bureaucratic um, economically increasingly stagnant country, then this is something which is, you know, which is an appealing message. Um, so that would be my sort of very quick summary of of, um, of Berlusconi, and uh, yeah, and he's he's on the he's on the cover of the the book as well. Um, a very a, a great design by by a friend of mine uh, who's a graphic designer. So listen, um, I, I think the conversation ha- has been very interesting so far. Uh, George and I, I, I guess I, I kind of want to see if we can push back a little bit on you here. Um, y- you talk in the book, and if you'll permit me, I think I'm going to have a follow-up question to this if there's time. But you talk about the limits of left populism, and you note how, and, and you've already kind of uh, said as much, I think, in the course of this interview. You know how le- how the left has been kind of colonized by the PMC in recent times. I think that we'd argue that that is kind of a, a lingering feature of, of post-politics and the end of history. The problem, however, I wonder is, is you know, you, you claim that left leaders, and I'm thinking here Bernie, maybe AOC, maybe Pablo Iglesias or Jeremy Corbyn, uh, did not key into the agency of their own citizens. And that strikes me as a kind of an odd claim if we're talking about populism, you know, is it is it necessarily the case that how do I want to put it here? I'm thinking of authors like Thomas Frank, who who might suggest that what you're talking about here was was more a bug than a feature in in the contemporary iteration of left politics. Uh, in the United States, at least, there is a very long history of left populist success, and I just wanted to maybe start there. How do you react to that argument that you know maybe maybe left populism has a very long history? And and maybe the, this most recent iteration of it um, is 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 more to do with the problems of our present moment than than necessarily left populism per se. I mean, to a certain extent, it's difficult to to argue with that too much. But I would say that you know the left populism we have now. I mean, is it possible to have a an older sort of left populism today? I mean, I I don't think it is. I think the I mean, you talked about. Uh, this claim that that um, they did not key into the agency of their own citizens, and I think, unsurprisingly, I would def- defend our own our own claim. I think this was the the political, not mistake, but like the political um, characteristic of left populism, is that it wasn't actually that populist. It wasn't actually really. It didn't show a respect for popular sovereignty. Um, like it's weird, right? That you have the Corbyn movement, supposedly a left populist movement, in the shadow of a Brexit referendum, campaigning ag- like arguing against that vote, argue- a majority a majority vote, arguing um, like for a second referendum. That's very strange. Um, Syriza, for example, another character often adduced as a kind of characteristic example of left populism. They showed very little respect for popular sovereignty in the Greek context. I would, I would, I would suggest. So, my kind of, or the way, I th- I, the way I think I would sort of try and summarize this is that the the people, or more like more generally, the working class for these left populist movements was seen as a, as the object, not the subject, of politics. So, political agency, working class power, and self government these were relatively 
de-emphasized or you know in some cases like straightforwardly like fought against and instead it was what are the you know what are the things that we can give to people not that there's you know there's obviously politics is about giving things to people materially that's important for a political project but it's not the same thing as saying what is it that working class people that, that gives power in one of the main things is is the vote and so you're looking to ex to extend and to deepen that power rather than to um say like here's here's what you can get you can get free broadband for for voting for us so i'm, I'm i am quite um i mean obviously a lot of my examples are quite kind of more british focused i'm yeah you know the the parochial one on on the podcast as you know <clears throat> Brits have a have a have a right to be you <laughs> know in old blighty <laughs> so yeah um but yeah I mean I think it's sort of I, th I think my my yeah the point of whether it's a feature or, or a bug I mean yeah it's, it's it's very difficult I guess to 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 um, sort of say that now I, I would say though that some of us who were skeptical of this did did say it at the time um so I don't know. Does that is that a good enough well, a, a, well, that's excuse a good, or account? I don't know. No, it's it's good. It's it's. Uh, I wanted maybe a, a transition into that second question that I mentioned a second ago because I, I guess I'm just curious. You know, like if it's left populism, then uh, I I guess it, it, it sort of triggers a certain set set of concerns. But if it's if it is this kind of PMC colonized other thing, then probably it's not left populism, right? It's something else. It's some kind of PMC project. It's some kind of cynical ploy, whatever, you know, a, a neoliberal front. But it's, it, you know, it's not necessarily what it says on the tin. And I just, you know, I, I think in that sense, then what I'm kind of curious about is if you can say more about what an adequate left populism should look like, right? I mean, the book is very rich on this question. Uh, you know, you cite Elian Glasser, I, I, or is it Elian Glasser, uh, who says that populism is simultaneously an anti-political movement and an expression of desire for a return to politics proper. So already kind of captured in the notion of populism is this kind of ambiguity or, or complication. Um, and I, I guess I kind of want to stay in that complication because I don't necessarily see the flaws of AOC, for example, as necessarily exhausting the matter. So maybe you could just say a little bit more about what you yourself think or, or what you and the, the rest of the Banga crew think an adequate left theory of politics should look like at this moment. So yeah, I, I can't I can't speak on behalf of the whole uh, of all three of us. Uh, I you know I have to take responsibility for for my own uh, analysis at this point because I think this is something which we actually disagree on, and we, that's because it's a very you know it's a very live issue. I mean my my response. I mean it is a it is a good question. My I think my instinct is essentially that there are a few words or a few things that the that the left you know to characterize to, to generalize and be quite quite crude about it that the left kind of re responds negatively against and sort of sets itself against and these are the things that i think are you know i, I wouldn't necessarily say that the political project you know that i would be engaged in you know, outside the podcast to the extent that this exists is is a is a populist one or is a kind of a left one you know those are those are it's you know maybe an open question and not all, all that much interest to to listeners in terms of what I'm doing myself. But I think to to address the question of what would an adequate left theory of of politics look like, I think those those two things I think are really crucial. One is authority, and the other is the nation. So, and this is hopefully irritating or at least making some listeners uh, think. So, authority. What does what does a kind of adequate picture of authority look like? I mean. I still think it's that that kind of illustration to Hobbes's Leviathan. So you have this massive kind of Leviathan, <laughs> this massive beast lurk, like looming over the the country at large. And what is it composed of? Um, all the little individual people. Like what what is political authority? It is a it is a collective. 
it is a collective thing. It is it is a common power. I mean, Hobbes's version has king's head, and that's 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 not what what I'd be after. But this idea that there is a necessity for of representation and of authority um, in politics. Those things, the left, I think, has been quite anti-authority since at least sixty-eight onwards, um, and I think this is. You know, I, I'm happy to kind of expand on this, but just to kind of finish what I was, finish the thought a little bit, this idea of the nation, like I think this is really a crucial thing to, to or something which I'm hoping to, you know, to be a bit more articulate and the thoughts to be a bit more developed on this in, a, in the coming months and years, because I think it's crucial. The nation, not as a cultural construct, but as a political one, like how is it that instead of talking about like this is what it is to be to be british or english or american or whatever instead saying here is the site of where collective power is constructed where representation occurs and where power is exercised i mean i think that's that's crucial so against you know kind of being against horizontalism against direct democracy and recognizing that what constitutes the nation politically is a system where you represent the interests of the citizenry at some collective level, and that's what constitutes political authority and power. So it's quite that's quite a quite a political theory abstract answer, but um, yeah, I think that that that's what I think the question might have been getting at. Steph, you're up. Yeah. Um, so I have a question that is uh, related, but also more topical, um, and it's related to the pandemic. I. I guess so let's talk Canadian truckers. Um, <laughs> the left has dismissed the, the trucker rally as an alt-right movement, but uh, what would you say that, what would you, would you say they've overlooked its anti-political nature from the point of view of the book? What would you say the reaction, the left reaction to this um, indicates? Yeah. So I think, I, I'm not sure that I would necessarily agree that the truckers' protest is anti-political. I mean, I I would tend to to follow an an, an analysis which would say there is a coherence to to the to the demands, and that they you know these are material political demands. Like all the the central core of that is that's how it's that's how it's constituted. And I guess I guess the anti-political aspect though possibly does come in through what you could you could understand as the political independence of the truckers so this idea that it's not a movement which is straightforwardly associated with any existing political parties or any existing representative vehicles if you'll pardon the the, the pun there and instead it's a an expression nice one yeah <laughs> it wasn't that good so i'm, I'm it's good it was good i yeah, sorry. I'm. I'm. Should have. I. I, I was. I, there were such good questions that I, I wanted to respond to them seriously. I just couldn't <laughs> help myself. Um, okay. But no. I, I. So yeah. I think it's a coherent expression of a material demand. And so, if it, if there is an anti-political element, it comes through the the failures and insufficiencies of existing kind of representative um, institutions. And I think that's the to take the point on the left's response to this. Um, and I know this is not, um, I'm not necessarily in, I don't think everyone on, on the podcast that I'm a host of or the listeners of that would agree with this, but I think it's a, it's a sort of, it's a crude expression of a, of a, of a class interest that the left is sort of saying, or many on the left or is are saying like, there's something wrong with this. We need to, de to delegitimize and dismiss this protest because, you know, these are, the, we we feel that there's a material potential material conflict um with these with these protesters so i think in general the this a good starting point is always to be as kind of as vulgar and marxist as possible try and like start with a material analysis and then you know if you need to if you need to finesse it as they say then you, you can do but you, maybe the political conflict in this case is about is about material interests david yeah um so Thanks for that, George. I have a um, a question that sort of follows up on that, but I also on the the trucker protest and the left response to it. But I also wanted to bring in some of 
essentially the sort of predictions and like uh, political projects for the future that you see in the book, um, which is really in chapter eight, where you, where you lay this out. And I think actually that's one of the best tables in the book is, is, is this table in chapter eight. So yeah, so essentially you have like three potential political projects that you see in the future. Um, um, state capitalism, progressive technocracy, and authoritarian populism. So I wanted to know if you could give the listeners just a brief summation of these projects and how it is that you see them relating to each other. And also perhaps where the emergence of this like new phenomenon that appears to be a contradiction in terms, the fusion of technocracy um, and populism or technopopulism, where that also fits into the future. And sorry, I know this is already kind of a long question, but I'm also wondering if you would um, modify your analysis at all in lights of the events of the last year and a half. Because as you said earlier, the, the book was mainly written before, you know, before the pandemic even really hit. So I'm just wondering if you would, um, you know, if you, how you th- see the response to the pandemic changing those initial predictions and whether you would, um, like to me personally, I found that in the book, the, the, you seem to slightly underestimate what I see as a deeply authoritarian nature of progressive technocracy, which I think is on display in, for example, the Trudeau administration's response to the trucker protests. So I just, yeah, wanted to know if you would agree with that and whether you can just, you know, lay out those, all those concepts that you, that you give us towards the end of the book. Yeah, I mean it's a good it's a good question. I mean a, a a tricky one as as well. I guess the the way that I would try and outline this to um to listeners and thank you so much for saying that the table was good. Um that's very heartening to hear. Um yeah. Um so I think the what we were trying to do in this chapter was try and work out what are the political like following on from the analysis of the rest of the book, what are the political divide it's going to be or what's the main political divide going to be in the next in the next decade and i mean i think it's held up pretty well in that the main divide between a kind of the right as being post liberal more state investment um junking austerity um and a left which is a union of expert rule and a kind of charitable impulse um treating as i said the working class as object not subject as politics i think this this was sort of what happened i would say during during covid and in fact both of those two projects ended up being essentially on the same side which was one of um basically no posi- no positive substantive political project to advance and so instead looking as a default policy tool to demobilize citizens through lockdowns and actually i think as you really rightly point out to be quite authoritarian to show to actually show very little respect for civil liberties um and you know there were very few people at least in this country really sticking up for for those civil liberties i think the the kind of the rollback of of those was was very was almost complete and very very fast so i guess the 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 you know the proof is going to be in the pudding to to a certain extent in terms of how like how durable these these projects are but just to kind of i think what we try to do a little bit in the book is work out what are the sort of social bases of these of these projects and so my take would be that this kind of progressive technocracy or this kind of um experts and and charitable impulses this so the social base of this is the 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 pmc the hated pmc who we've we've talked about previously but there is a there is a split within this group i think there's a split between particularly the downwardly mobile bottom half or bottom faction or fraction of the pmc who constitute the more radical quote-unquote socialists and the more economically stable upper half um who are maybe social democrats or 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 something like that and then the right, the I think the one thing which has been noted, um, and I think this this was illustrated really well in the twenty nineteen general election here, is that this this project is increasingly um, tacking towards working class support and 
I think that's people talk about the possibilities of realignment and how you know these have been you know to a certain extent going on for 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 quite a while but I think there's there is a new political project which looks to um and Johnson Johnsonism if that's a thing I don't think it is probably but you can see how that would be an attempt to um to look to incorporate various aspects of working class support into the Conservative Party, which is a traditional kind of right wing party. So I guess that that would be my sort of my summary is that if you're talking about left versus right, you have that progressive technocracy versus a kind of post uh, post liberal statist, more statist model than more, more than Thatcherite. But this, of course, sort of leaves out a whole load of other things. Um, but my my sort of take would be these these are where the outside of those two streams is where the interesting kind of new projects could could emerge and where potentially people who don't feel represented um you know that's that's where the potentially the political energy will increasingly increasingly be so i guess i'm sort of saying uh to translate it to the the british context like um labor is is over the tories their project is a dead end don't worry i'm not saying you should all go towards the liberal democrats but you know there's a real question of like where is it that that this kind of anti-political energy which 2016 kind of as i said democratic moment without a democratic movement where this all this energy was released where does it where does it go because i don't think the um exhausted political traditions that we have across europe and particularly in in britain i don't think they'll be able to contain this this for for you know, for all that much longer because they're already pretty creaking and and failed. So, um, yeah, not that I not that I have an easy solution of of what of what sort of replaces them, but I think that that seems to me to be where we are at the moment. You need a, a Marianne Williamson, George, uh, a, a magical woman with healing crystals and uh, a faith based <laughs> uh, populist agenda. Do you have a Do you have a Do you have a spare? I, I don't know. We we'll yeah send, we, we'll send we do. Over. <laughs> we, unfortunately, our our political system is not is not designed at all to to encourage the uh, innovation or political entrepreneurs such as such as her. Sadly, uh, George, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, do this one right off the top of my head because I um I it's it's occasioned by your remarks in your answer to the last question, but. I, I, I wanted to stick with that graph for just a minute. I think it's the table rather, excuse me, not a graph on uh, in, 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 table 8.1 is the one we're referring to, right, David? Yeah. So even, even um, better to even better to refer to a table by its, um, yeah, its yeah. hierarchically I'll, numbered referent. <laughs> I'll try to put this one for listeners in the uh, in the show notes if it's if it's at all possible, or maybe we can post it on the CU blog if if, if uh, the uh, authors will not find that to be too much of a copyright infringement. Um, but uh, I, I, there's a lot getting lumped in here with progressive technocracy. Um, you know, uh, it is I think uh, safe to say that there's a fairly significant strand within Marx's own writings that is uh, oriented towards what you call here, I think a little condescendingly, technological saviorism. Um, I get that the left today has uh, PMC orientations. I get today that there are woke sections of capital, that there are there are woke bros amongst the, the billionaire class, for sure. Uh, you know, look at the way SpaceX is is run and managed, and you'll see that it's uh, it's it's quite dripping with uh, with um, you know symbolism of Black Lives Matter that kind of thing. Um, but you know, it, it seems to me there is uh, perhaps a, 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 a casual overlooking of the fact that for Marx, the technological utopianism is a political project in its own right. I mean, it's what we're trying to do uh, as leftists, I think all of us and should be trying to do is build a, a left that is able to offer ordinary people a superior vision 
of a, of a future that where where you, you are not sort of faced into this kind of leftist austerity of of not being able to have flat screen televisions, not being able to have Gucci handbags because you know, well, we can't have nice things because it's going to ruin the planet. I think I think the left at its best is able to offer a technological vision that says, you know, I'm kind of inspired here by the the likes of Christian Parenti's writings about you know. Uh, heat sink or sorry, carbon sink technologies being developed in Iceland and places like this. You know, there, 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 there is a, I think, a way in which the technology question can be too quickly overlooked as a, uh, as itself a, a part of our political project. Yeah. No, I mean, thanks for for the question. I have to say, I completely and utterly disagree. Um, okay. And <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. No, I mean, it was. I think this is an important point to make. Yeah. I'll try and make it. I try and convince you. Let's see how I can go. Um, but yeah, it wasn't overlooked. I think the the idea that Marxism is a technological utopianism is one that I would really strongly disagree with. I think it's a, it's a scientific socialism, and I think that's a really important distinction. And I think the the it's just such an easy answer that's given. And I'm not saying this is what you were saying, Nick, but such an easy answer that's given by technological shortcuts. Um, but in reality, we are already at the technological stage required for socialism, in my opinion. And so we have the same we have the same political challenge that Marx and Engels had um, in the in the 19th century, which is that we do not have the political will, we do not have the political organization to take control of technology. And so I think the and again, I'm going to kind of go off on one. And this is again, this isn't what you're saying, but. Some people seem to think that we need to have this political leap forward in order to realize socialism. There are all these calculation debates and all these things which need to be solved and we just need some like new invention. And that's not it at all, I don't think. I think the the point is that we have a political challenge, not a technological one. And we, you know, we can't the more that you try to escape from that, the more it just comes back and you see that really it's a kind of it's an evasion it's an evasion of the of the you know cha- challenges to and defeats of 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 marxism to say you know it will be fine we don't actually need to engage in a political struggle because we can kind of you know we can win this one th- you know through a, another route which is just wait until the technology is good enough that that socialism is inevitable and that's n- never going to be the case i don't think i think it's always requires a a theory of politics and a theory of of action to to kind of to take political collective control of the technology that we do have and which as i said i think is sufficient for for socialism i think though that's a positive thing though right because it i like i like, like that move though george you're like saying like i know this isn't what you're saying nick but here's my response to this as if that's what you were saying <laughs> it's a good move you know, right like if it's i if a- i'm t- yeah 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 if i'm telling you that like the technological future is part of a leftist political project that isn't, in fact, at all to do with waiting around until, until the technology saves us. Because I think in, if you read Marx, that, that at that point in history where that contradiction occurs, that's where you end up in communism because the wage relation breaks, right? I mean, that's that's the Grundrisse, that's Communist Manifesto. But in term, but we're obviously we're not there now. I agree with you completely. We are already in the stage uh, where uh, we have all the technology we need to do socialism now. But what we need, I think, is a compelling vision of a technological future to bind ordinary people to our cause. Because right now, and this is where your book is so rich, because I think you do tap in very well to the PMC left austerity uh, kind of frame. And I just wonder, like, do you not sort of see a contradiction here between kind of on the one hand saying the left is too technological utopian and on the other hand, it's dominated by you can't have nice things left PMC tendencies. You know, the flat screen televisions have to go. The common man can't have nice things because reasons. Um, do, 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 any, yeah. any response there? Yeah, no, I mean, I think environmentalism is or any austerity uh, aspects um, are to be are to be rejected but this I, I i mean i would i think i would d- still disagree that you need to have a technological vision of, of the future i mean i don't i think that is one political you know political option but i think it's still i mean i guess this would be my uh, to actually try to respond to what to what you're saying not not <laughs> not what By all it means. <laughs> would be easier to respond to if you were saying um is that it's a it's needs to be a political account of power 
I think, and a political account of what democratic control looks like. You know, taking control, that's what I would say socialism is about. It's not about solving kind of production problems. I mean, it's a more economically efficient system. It's a more rational system, a more human system of production than capitalism. But I don't think, I think, yeah, I mean, so I kind of wanted to to kind of be a bit provocative, but I do think there is something, there is something there about saying, We'd, we're not going to sell you a vision of the future. Like the future under socialism would be better than the future under capitalism. But here and now it's about who who is in control. Um, and that's, I think, an important, I mean, you may or may not agree and listeners may or may, you know, they've got to pick a side, your side or my side, and they can, you know, choose choose wisely. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that, yeah, I would say it's it all, that's what it, that's my understanding of like, of the, the, the the core yeah, of Marx's I, I, understanding I, I, of what socialism is. Well, well, I I, I want to say two things. First of all, um, uh, you know, I I think we agree more than you think. We disagree, and uh, and I I will back that up someday to you, George, over a pint in a pub of your choosing, somewhere in England. Anyway, uh, folks, do we uh, any last words for George? This is fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you could make it. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you, George. Really good discussion. And um, yeah, thank you for uh, <laughs> bearing with my dumb questions. <laughs> Definitely looking forward no, to the, reading the rest of the book. The questions were very, the questions were very, very good. So thank you all for, you know, for, for, for putting in the effort and, and uh, you know, putting me on the spot a bit more than I probably might have liked and yeah nick if you are in or if any of you are in in the uk i'll i'll buy a, a pint of beer in a pub i, I see i can do a <laughs> i can do a, a british accent point a bitter it has to be bitter if it's not bitter i'm it's not on it's not happening george it's been wonderful thank you very much thank you all right cheers